It's great to be with you. For those of you who I haven't met yet, I'm Eric Smith. I'm one of the pastors at our East Campus, and it's great to be with you today. I look forward to being with you for the next few weeks. Um, that's just a warning. You can pray about your endurance and all the stuff that God wants to work in you. I tell my wife often I'm just part of God's sanctification plan for her. Um, that's kind of her response as well. Not real funny. There is one little change. We did let Dwight know that we were going into the book of Philippians, but I don't know that we told him exactly when we were going into the book of Philippians. So some of you saw in an email or heard from, heard from Dwight that we are headed there today. We're not going to head there today. We're going to do it in about four weeks. Um, we are going to look at the last two chapters of the book of Hebrews uh, for the next four weeks. That's where we're going to go. I think the Lord has some good messages for us at the East Campus. We're preaching through Hebrews and wrapping it up. And what a wonderful book for all of us to drop into together. So today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. As I said what I was going to preach on, I, I gave like half the chapter and said, I think this is where I'm going to go. The more I studied, including even this morning reviewing things, the passage got shorter and shorter. There is so much beautiful stuff here for us to get from the book of Hebrews and these first few chapters, first few verses in chapter 12. So let's just leave it open-handed, if you will. Um, I will stop at some point, and we will conclude our service, but let's see how far we can get. I'm going to shoot for maybe verse 11, but we'll just let the Lord lead us in that. And Father, I just, I just ask, will you do that? It's already been prayed, and I just, I just ask again to, we look at this issue of discipline and how you work in our lives, and it seems painful to us. And the writer of Hebrews says that. Our brothers and sisters from millennia ago felt the same thing. It's painful but you have a message for us in the midst of that, and we need to hear it. So open the eyes of our hearts to know you more, to walk in your ways, and to trust you and submit to you in whatever you have for us. By your mighty Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want to put the passage in front of us so that you're a little bit familiar with it if you haven't read it recently or haven't read it. Uh, at all. Let's, let's get it. Let me read through verse 11. And again, I'm in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. As I think about this and the, and, the, and the passage and the message God had for these people through this author uh, writing this book that we know as Hebrews, the church was suffering. The people he was writing to were suffering. They were going through persecution. And in the midst of it, they had a hard time seeing God's hand at work. They had a hard time seeing God at work. I think of it like, like this. Have you been around people who are speaking a language you do not know? If you're passing by them or you're, you hear that maybe you're in the, at the grocery store or something like that and you hear it and you know it's a language, you can see they're communicating to one another, but you don't know it and to you, to me, it just sounds like noise. But imagine if one of them, all of a sudden, and this would freak us all out, but let's just imagine for a second, one of them turns to you, looks you straight in the eye and has a message for you and you don't understand it. You feel the, the tension of, this is really important, I should know this, I can see the, the nonverbal communication is really intense, but I don't get it. These were some brothers and sisters of ours that lived in a different place and they lived a long time ago, and they suffered much worse than we have. At least, I, I'm generally speaking, I don't know what all you have gone through. God had a message for them. That is, they're going through hardship. He has this tremendous opportunity, and this, they have this tremendous opportunity to receive a message of his love for them. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, said, and this is a paraphrase, God whispers in our joys. But through the pain we experience, he speaks through a megaphone. Through the joys, through the pleasantness of life, God whispers, there's a better time coming. This is just a taste. But through the pain that you and I experience, God has a loud message for us. On one hand, he's saying, there is a better time coming if you trust in me. There's a worse time coming if you don't trust in me, in my son, in our message of salvation. God speaks loudly, C.S. Lewis had to say, but I think this is true as well, and we can think about as we work through this passage. I wonder if Satan doesn't also have a megaphone, because when we get into hardship, we don't always lean into it. The message for us today is if we have hard things that we're experiencing, hard times we're going through, lean into our Father. Lean in to Him. The author of the writer of Hebrews is going to share some with that. Admittedly, 
the context for this is not hard times in general. So I'm going to take it there because I think the rest of Scripture is James 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you go through trials of various kinds. And he's going to talk about various trials. Paul will say there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not persecution and sword, but also not famine, not nakedness, not poverty. And we can add sickness, illness, disease, all of these sorts of things. But for the listeners here, and let's get some context since we're just jumping in. If you will just turn back a little bit in the book of Hebrews to chapter 10. We'll get a little bit of a running start on the passage that we're going to unpack here this morning. Chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, the writer is going to speak to what these believers have already endured. Jump in and follow along as I start in verse 32, chapter 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you came to faith, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do you see what these believers have already gone through? They have been publicly, in the public square, humiliated because they are followers of Jesus. They've been put up publicly to be, to be, to be cast as, put all the reproach on them, and they experienced that, and they experienced affliction that comes with that. The power, the culture at the time, just condemning those who would say, Jesus is Lord, he's my king, he's my savior, I, I'm going to follow him. Maybe some of them didn't receive it personally, but they associated with those who were receiving it publicly and receiving that guilt by association because they wanted to support their brothers and sisters. And then they had those who were in prison and compassion on those who had prison probably put into prison because of their faith, not because of their wrongdoing, but because of their faith in Jesus. And then this amazing verse, and think about this, let's just put this on, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I just imagine all of us in front of our houses joyfully watching the plundering of our property. That's what our brothers and sisters did. Because their eyes were not set on earthly value system. They knew there's a better place, there's a better person. They knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. These brothers and sisters faced hard times. They had already done this and they'd come through victoriously. Their faith was intact, their trust in Jesus was there. And they lived it out. And that's important for us to recognize. It's not just that we confess Jesus, it's that we obey Jesus. We don't get to say, I love you, Jesus, and then go kicking and screaming at anything and everyone who gets in our way, who makes life difficult for us. 
They survived public humiliation and the plundering of their property. But now, some time has gone by. We don't know how much time, but some time has gone by, and they're experiencing this sort of hardship again. And the writer is writing to them, saying, don't fall away. Don't walk away from Jesus. And so, after chapter 10, he gives us this incredible chapter, chapter 11. It's usually the way it works. Chapter 11 what we commonly call, or sometimes we call, the Hall of Faith. Kind of the, the Hall of Fame in the Bible of these great Old Testament, these Old Testament men and women who trusted the amount of promise that they had at that time. They didn't know clearly what God was going to do for them, what the Son of God would do for all of us who put our faith in him, that he would die and take our punishment so that we could be brought into his family. But they knew God, and they trusted him. And so in, in chapter 11, the writer says, hey, don't give up, brothers and sisters. Don't give up. I want you to be like these people. Recognize what they've gone through. And he goes all the way back. He goes to Abel. He goes to Enoch. He goes to Noah. He goes to Abraham. He goes to Sarah. And he goes on down. He goes through Moses. He comes back to Abraham. And he talks at length about the trusting that, that Abraham did and the promises passed down to Isaac and Jacob. And as he gets towards the end of the chapter, he begins to speed up and he's probably thinking, I, I only have so much room to write this stuff down but there's so much more I want to put in front of you. For those going through hard times, others have gone through hard times and trusted God. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms. They saw victory. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war, and they put foreign armies to fight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. There are men and women who have trusted God and they have seen glimpses of his promises fulfilled here and now. And there are men and women who have trusted in God and this largely Old Testament witnesses, but we can fill it in with 2,000 years of martyrdom, of persecution. Brothers and sisters who clung to Jesus knowing there was something better than what this world had to offer. And so, in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1, the writer says, Therefore, 
therefore. We always want to know what is, what is that word pointing back to? What is the therefore, therefore? That's kind of a corny way to say it, but it stuck with me, so maybe it'll stick with you. What is it therefore? You're going through hard times. They're facing persecution again. But you're not alone, the writer has to say. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It is right for us to picture the athletic stadium. It is filled with people. But unlike the athletic stadium where you and I go to attend, where we join as fans and cheer for our team, this is an athletic stadium filled only, only with alumni. And not just alumni, but alumni that were on the team, who endured the two-a-days, who went through the practices, who went through the trenches, who participated in the games, who know how hard it is, so to speak, with this athletic stadium metaphor. The writer of Hebrews says, brothers and sisters at this time, and certainly brothers and sisters for us today, there are those who have gone before us that are surrounding us, that are cheering you on. They made it. Their names are in the Bible, so to us, they're like extra special. Like, wow, they did amazing things. What God knows is they weren't extra special. They were like you, and they were like me. But they didn't fall away from Jesus. They didn't give up on the God who comes to us, the God who forgives, the God who brings us in, the God who strengthens us. They didn't turn around and walk the other way. They leaned into their father through these hard times. So he says, in, in the midst of this athletic stadium filled with those who have gone before, who know the hardships, who know what it feels like to be a follower of God and experience the uncertainty, the unknown, the the, the, I'm trusting you, but it's invisible to me. I can't see it, what you're, what you're promising me, God. Then let us run with endurance. How do we do this? The author tells us two things. Get rid of the hindrances or the weight and the sin which clings so closely. I think it's right for us to understand these two as two distinct things. The hindrances could be those things that just slow us down in our walk with God. I don't know what comes to mind for you. I, I, I know there's a number of things that come to mind for me. My cell phone tends to be one of them. I just realized I forgot it this morning, had just a minor panic attack. That's an issue I, I need to work out. The things on the phone... We know social media, I mean, studies have been done. The, the, that stuff distorts, it changes our, our wiring, it messes with us. Not, not just it messing with us in terms of how we're wired and how we work, but it puts, puts in front of us so much of all these other people are happy or all this other stuff is, is happening, I'm missing out. 
or I don't look like that person, or I haven't accomplished what that person does for the young people in this room, that's a significant danger in the social media world. To feel like all the truth and all the reality is being communicated through those venues. We have people who are influencers, who are, have YouTube channels and they're influenced, sometimes way outpaces what they should be influencing or who they should be influencing or what they actually have to contribute. Whether it's solid stuff or most often it's, it's just trivial or small or even just self-centered stuff. These can be hindrances, not sinful in and of themselves. Do you get that? Not sinful in and of themselves, but when we give in an inordinate place for these things, they slow us down, they add weight. The literal word behind hindrance is weight, and it was used in the athletic realm. It was used for like cutting weight, getting rid of weight for, that the athlete would do to be better at performing in the competition. These things that hinder, it's the idea of the athlete taking off the warm-up outfit instead of lining up. You guys watched the Summer Olympics, an, a, a, a swimmer getting on the blocks. If somebody got up there with their full warm-up suit on, you'd be like, hey, buddy, like, I'm, I'm no athlete, but that's not going to help you. That is only going to hurt you. We put those things off, whatever hindrances it may be. Maybe it's a hobby of some sort. Maybe it's a sport. Maybe it's, I, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's COVID. Maybe you have an inordinate desire to follow what is happening with all of that stuff. I, 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 I'm, talk radio. That is largely not healthy. Largely. It moves our hearts in the wrong direction. Oftentimes in the direction of hatred. Revenge. It's, it's this interesting mix of two of the most powerful elements in our culture, politics and entertainment, coming together. And they're amazing entertainers. And sometimes they say true things. I just have a hard time figuring out which is which sometimes. Not sinful to listen to it, right? But does it help us in our walk with Jesus Christ. Put it off. If there's something that's coming to your mind and you're a note taker, would you write down the hindrance that is coming to your mind now? Would you talk to somebody after the service about that? Not because it's that, that thing is sin, but because if you put it off, you have a better chance of meditating on the Word of God, of memorizing and thinking about the Word of God and understanding His will for your life. We need to hear His message clearly. And like our brothers and sisters from a long time ago, there's lots of clutter. There's lots competing for that. And for us, it's not just hardship. I think sometimes we actually amplify the hardship. We over-exaggerate it. Maybe there's more to say. I'll save that for some future Sunday for the dozen or so people that remain through that time. All right. But it's not just these hindrances. It's not just things that we maybe should, should consider letting go of and not, and, and not giving it as much time. But the author says sin 
which clings so closely. What I love about this is, is this, this writer, he's, he's one of us. He recognizes that sin is never far from us. Because we are broken creatures. We are broken. We, are, we do not have it all together. Even after we come to Christ and the Holy Spirit works in us and gives us ways out whenever we're tempted, it seems like, if you're like me, I don't often, or always, I should say, take that out. Even if we do resist the sin, the weariness that comes with the temptations are something that you and I will experience until we go home or until Jesus comes back to get us. Sin clings so closely. And here, don't, don't take it to like the farthest extreme because a lot of us maybe haven't committed some of those farthest, worst labeled sins. Let's just bring it back to things God calls sin. Greed. Greed. We're in America. Fixating on our retirement and how much we're going to have. It's good to plan. It's also good to be generous. Greed. Anger. Wrath. Feeling that other people need to feel my wrath, my punishment, rather than patiently waiting for God to work all things out in his time, even if his time is not in this lifetime. Coveting, slander, gossip. Oh, those are easy ones. Satan can just whisper and kind of move us into some of those directions. That stuff's never far away. The writer of Hebrews knows this and knows that even as we go through hard times, we might think we find some comfort in these. And he tells them, no, you have such a great cloud of witnesses, these who have already finished the race, and they're cheering for you. You can do it. Put those things off. Put the hindrances, the extra weight, put those things off. The sin, recognize that. And if you recognize that and see what it is, jot that down and share that with somebody after the service. Ask the elders to pray for you after the service. That's what God tells us to do. Confess these things to one another so that you can find the strength of God through confession and repentance and turning from those things. Lean into him. Lean into him. Listen for his voice saying, I love you. I love you. I'm not far away because you're going through hard times. I'm near. Come to me. Walk in my ways and run, brothers and sisters, with endurance. It's a long race. None of us know how long our race is, our lives. None of us know how long our lives will be. But one word that gets repeated over and over in these 11 verses is endurance. Endure. Approach this life with the intentionality that it's going to be hard, that you and I are going to be tired along the way for all sorts of reasons. They were tired because of the hardship being imposed upon them, not to mention whatever daily struggles they had, normal struggles they had, but they had this opposition this oppression from those who were persecuting them for their faith. 
don't grow weary. Cast off the things that slow us down and with endurance run the race set before us. Let me add this element and then the author is going to take us to Jesus. This race that we're in is not a competition for you to run faster than me or me to run faster than you. It's for us to run together. This is the beauty of the local church. You're not trying to win. I'm not trying to win. We're trying to get there together. A friend of mine would share this African proverb, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it sounds good. It works. If you want to run fast, you run alone. If you want to run far, you run together. There's some truth in that, isn't isn't there? If we want to run far, and that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do, tells us to do, then we run together. Don't break off. Don't break off and try to go your own way. It might be hard. There might be hard things, but let's work at those things together. And let's please the Lord because we're going to be patient and we're going to be gentle with each other and we're going to trust him and we're going to set ourselves on a pace in which we can endure. Well, not only those things, but as, as, as the athletic uh, metaphor continues, the writer says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's the ultimate. We need to do all these things. Put off the hindrances. Put off sin. But not in a legalistic way. If we think, oh, I'll just, I'll just get rid of these things. And then I'll be a better runner. Then, then we're missing it. It all only makes sense if we look to Jesus. The pioneer, the author, the beginner of our faith. But also the perfecter of our faith. He was the one who lived out perfect faith, fully trusting his father all the way to the end. And the author here, as, as Paul does, as others do, they, they, they remind us of what Jesus did with his faith. They, he trusted the father through the cross, back to heaven, seated at the father's right hand. Are you looking to Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus or is there something else that if this just happens, then I'll be okay? If we just get past this, then, then, I'll, then I'll be all right. You and I are not going to be pleasant to be around. And we are not going to be pleasing to God if that is our approach. Look to Jesus. He knows all about suffering. He knows all about the wrath of God. He shouldn't know all about that. But he does. There's an interesting phrase here, and I want to ask you a question. We look to Jesus, who's the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him endured the the cross. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? 
I heard some people give some answers, but I couldn't quite hear it. So I'll take it as us. Amen. His inheritance. If we think the joy set before Jesus, so he endured the cross, was above all, it includes this, but if it was above all, obedience, then what's your faith and mine going to look like? Most important is obedience. Legalism. Get that right. Get this right. That's what pleases God. Get this right. Get that right. Is obedience important? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we don't take that off. We keep it. But we just don't make it the highest. What if, what if not, not obedience? What if just getting back to the right hand of the Father, exaltation, his kingdom, his kingship, ruling over all? What if that was the greatest thing? What if that was the joy set before Jesus? And you could think that because it's kind of where he goes. He endured the cross, he despised the shame of it, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I don't know about you, but what that does is paints a picture of, a, of the Son of God who wants to get back to the Father, who wants to get back to ruling, who wants to just get back to this position and maybe kind of be done with all this messiness so he can just get back to what's good. I mean, just Trinity and, and those in heaven who are, who are worshiping him. He's in his rightful place. He is exalted. But I don't think either obedience to the Father or the exaltation of him back to his rightful place or receiving the kingdom because he has done what the Father sent him to do. I don't think those two are first and foremost. I think you guys nailed it. If love is not the first word that we think of, when we think of our Father, our faith will not be Christian. Think about that for this week. You can send me a text or emails if that needs to be corrected, and I'll correct it next week. But I think, I think we're on the right track. If love is not the overarching, overarching, some of these other things fit underneath it, but the overarching banner of who our Father is, then you and I are worshiping the wrong God. We're like worshiping Allah. He does not need relationship, right? He existed for all of time. Islam borrows from, from the God of the Bible here. If, if there's only one God and he has no son and spirit, if there's son and spirit, God can exercise love in that relationship and then in creation can share that love with us and it only comes naturally to him. If God is one, then he really doesn't need people because he operated in all of eternity prior to creation without people and now there are people and they're like us. Unless God is love, he's not going to come towards people like us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus obeyed his father. 
He is exalted. There is nobody, nothing that's going to move him from his position. But the joy was to see you and me and all the people that God is calling to come to himself, humble ourselves, and turn to him by faith. And the author here is pleading with these people, keep that faith, keep that faith. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted, not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. A few more verses here. The, 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 the image continues. Press on. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Now, you have this crowd of witnesses. They've all made it. He's listed a number of them in chapter 11. And now he's saying, but look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. So that you won't grow weary or faint-hearted. He endured. He will help you. The beautiful thing that Jesus has to offer, that our, that our, that our brothers and sisters and, and those who have persevered to the end and have kept their faith don't have to offer, Jesus offers himself. He offers his strength. He offers the Holy Spirit to strengthen us. The author adds, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Others have gone before you. They have persevered through that. Jesus has persevered through that. And then he switches from the athletic, and, and, and now he's going to move into this section that we looked at. And he brings in this fatherly element of discipline. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he quotes here from Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. And he goes on in the section that we read, and he makes this comparison. If we have earthly fathers who do this, and we respect them, like that, that's something we can relate to, we get that. If it's true of earthly fathers, how much greater is it for us to respect and think of the loving tenderness, the kindness, actually, of our Father, our Heavenly Father. As the author pulls this message from the book of Proverbs, he has a clear Christian view of this. Solomon, writing the book of Pro Proverbs, writes to his, to his son, telling him how he ought to live in the ancient world and so this is how they this is how the original hearers of the book of hebrew would, would have heard this and we hear it a little bit differently in the ancient world the greco-roman world as well as the jewish christian world fathers were in charge of the moral and academic upbringing of their sons the fathers were responsible for the moral and academic upbringing of their sons so they might, you know, hire a tutor or send them to school. However they wanted to do it, they could do it. But they were responsible. And so this message from Solomon, as well as in the Greco-Roman world, which is why the comparison keeps going back to fathers disciplining their sons, fathers disciplining their sons, would have come through loud and clear for them. 
it's not drastically different for us. Though we, in our Christian cultures, I think rightly see that that role can be carried out by mom and dad. And in our fallen world, sometimes there is mom or there is dad. The parents are responsible for the moral and academic and general upbringing of the kids. And we care how kids are developed. But that's why in in this passage in particular and in the quotation, there's going to be a lot of emphasis on father-son. We can broaden that out a little bit to parent-child in the, in, in, in the development. But the ultimate message here is recognize the work of the Heavenly Father. Because God, the Lord, disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The discipline goes both ways. If you're a parent, you know you do this. When something is done wrong, there is usually discipline. We catch it. There is discipline for wrongdoing. To tell our kids that was wrong. And so there is some appropriate, hopefully discipline, to correspond to the level of wrongness that was done. That is one form of discipline, a correction to wrongdoing. God will do that in our lives. God will do that in our lives because of his loving kindness towards us. He does not want us to continue in those things. I don't know about you, but in my life, I know he doesn't just show up immediately after I disobey and whacks me upside the head. In hindsight, when I can take it, I'm like, maybe I needed that. But sometimes... There's some time that goes by before I recognize something that I had done that was wrong, that was disobedient. Something I had done or something I had not done. But there's another form of discipline. If you're a kid, you you know this. If you're a parent, you try to instill this. And that's sort of the discipline of doing things that we need to do to develop character. I don't know about your kids. My kids don't always clamor to do their homework. I think there was one day they did. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. I like it when I see them pull out their own notebooks and workbooks and things that they need to work on to get it done and to, and to, and to, to kind of take initiative and do it. And I love that. But then there are times when homework or chores or something like that, maybe you kids can relate. Ah, chores. I hate those chores. And parents will say things like, well, we're all in this together. We're all family. We all got to take part in taking care of the house and taking care of the things. It's good for you. It develops character. I think I've said all those things. And they're all true, right? They're all true. But that's another part of, of parenting discipline that we need. Because you and I, let's broaden this out to all of us now. You and I, we want comfort. We want ease. We want prosperity. We want to be liked. We want the things we do to be liked, to be approved of. But how much more have you grown from those tough conversations, from those hard times? Times that look very earthy when it's just a human being talking to you. 
or the extreme that these people are experiencing and brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are experiencing, North Korea and China and other places around the world are experiencing when a real human being comes to their door and wants to drag them off to prison because they're followers of Jesus Christ. Even then, God says, I'm at work. Trust me. Trust me. I am at work. Lean into me. We will find in our Father what we need for our hearts and souls more than we will in the resistance that we might put up to his work. Do we acknowledge wrongdoing as wrongdoing? Evil as evil? Yes. Absolutely. When Christians are persecuted because they are Christians, it's wrong. We can go down the list of wrongdoing, of bad things that happen to us, things that we have done to others. Sin is sin. Evil is evil. And we fully recognize that. This passage doesn't diminish that. But it does say, come to our Father. In fact, this word that we all as Americans love is right in the middle of this chapter, submit. And all God's people say, yeah, love that one. Submit to the governing authorities, yes, sign me up. We call evil, evil, but we submit because God works through all things. God brings good through all things for those who love him. You and I are not right. We need our Father's discipline. I wish he just told us, go read this book, and let's talk about it when you're done. Maybe over a cup, maybe over a cortado or something like that. I would be very, very happy. But God uses hard things in our lives to discipline us. He asks us to put things off, and that is difficult for us. But you and I can do it by his strength. He asks us to put off that sin which clings so closely and then he says, and this is the message which sometimes comes through as a foreign language, he says, in the hardship that you are enduring, I am there. Trust me. Trust me. Don't turn away. Whatever you do, don't turn away. Come to me. Let me show you what I'm doing. The author says, discipline feels painful in the moment, but in time, it bears fruit. It bears fruit in your soul and in mine. The fruit of peace and righteousness or peaceful righteousness, it makes us more like our brother and our Lord Jesus Christ. Hardship is good for us. I really wish this wasn't a message in the Bible. I wish we could just sort of, rah, 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 let's go, let's take this part out. Keep the resurrection in there. Of course, I want to keep Jesus's. 
hardship in there, don't I? We get to walk through just a tiny bit of what he walked through. Because of love, because he loves us. I want to end with this passage, and worship team, I'll invite you to come back up. But will you turn to John chapter 17 with me? John chapter 17. If you're familiar with that chapter, you know this is where Jesus prays for his disciples as he himself is preparing to go to the cross. He's going to pray for his disciples. We're going to jump in the middle of this, and he's praying for his disciples. He's going to broaden it out and pray for all of us, for everyone who would hear the message through the disciples, the apostles, and would put their trust and faith in him. As you go through hard times, I want you to lean in to our Father because he loves you. Hardship is not something that says he is far away from you, but it is something that he says, listen to me, I'm with you, I'm doing this, and I'm making you more like my son. Because he loves us. Listen to what Jesus, as he walked through the cross, death, resurrection, and the ascension and exaltation, the door he opened up was the door to heaven, the door to relationship with the Father and to commune with the Father and the Son, and that is what brought joy to Jesus. I'm going to start at verse 16, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. They are not of this world. He's talking of his disciples, just as I am not of the world. Will you sanctify them in the truth? Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And let's just hit the pause button here for a second. He's praying. He's praying for all of us, for all of our brothers and sisters through time and through, through, through around the world. All of us who believe are praying that they would receive this too. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. And I'm going to pause right there and bring it to an end. This is the joy that Jesus had. He endured the cross so that the family of God could grow and, can, and bring in people like us. You and I want comfort. We don't need comfort. We need character development. We need to be like Jesus. And through hard times, we need to trust our Heavenly Father. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for your loving kindness. It doesn't always look like that or feel like that, but we need to learn the language of love that you speak through hardship. So put this deep in our hearts. 
that you love us even as we go through hard things and let us, by your strength, draw near to you. Jesus, open that door for us. We pray all this in his mighty name. Amen.